0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we search for new and interesting books, and we interview the authors of those books. And this week I'm very pleased to say we will be talking to Pasan Parthasarathi about his book, uh, Why Europe Grew Rich and Asia Did Not, Global Economic Divergence. Uh, 1600 to 1850. Uh, I have read a lot of books that try to explain why Europe grew rich and Asia did not. I love the title of this book. It's completely telegraphic. That's one of its great virtues. The whole book is telegraphic. But I, I, I confess after reading all these books, I do not know. I do not know. But I think after um, reading a uh, uh, Pasanen's book, I, I have a better idea of of why uh, Europe grew rich and Asia did not. This is obviously an extraordinarily big question and touchy in many ways, and and I think that uh, Pasanen does a very good job of of uh, of explaining w- why uh, these two areas of the world, really more than two areas of the world, uh, ended up in different states. And he does so in a very neutral, and I think uh, I don't know if I should say this word or not. Scientific? Can I say that Pasanen scientific fashion? Is that okay? <laughs> sure! <laughs> um, yeah, because he has a thesis, lordy, lordy, he has a thesis, and the thesis is either wrong or right, and he musters evidence uh, to, to show that the thesis is right, and that's it's a very great virtue of this book, too. So, Prasan, um thank you for being on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Marshall. All right. So, uh, could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Well, I'm from India. Uh, many of our listeners can probably deduce from my name, uh, but I came to the United States as a child. Uh, my father worked at the World Bank, so we, my family moved to Washington, D.C., and I spent a lot of summers in India and kind of going back and forth. Under the stark differences in income and wealth were always something that I kind of puzzled over. Uh, and as a, as a uh, college student. I was an undergraduate at Williams College. I was actually starting to study chemistry. But um, as a sophomore, I spent a semester taking a class on the uh, writings of Karl Marx. And that kind of changed my direction. And I majored in economics. And then I ended up in a PhD program in economics at Harvard. Where I started thinking about these questions a little more intensively, and um, so my training is actually in economics, which may uh, account for the description of my book as scientific. So I think (laughs)
0: I—I meant that in a totally good way.
1: (laughs) No, no, I know, but I think I I have a a a pretty strong training in 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 analytic strong analytic training, we could call it. Um, so it's a, uh, during, during, when I was doing my PhD, I was a student of David Landis's and um I, picked a thesis topic, so my area of research was in economic history, so I picked a thesis topic on 18th century South India, which is the region of India that I'm from. And it was a study of the textile industry and weavers and merchants. And I picked this topic really, because I thought it could shed light on two questions that I was interested in most. One was, what was the impact of the rise of British rule in India? and the second was I thought that a study of textile manufacturing in the region of India would help me shed light on this problem of why Europe rich and did not. So that's how I... That's when I started thinking about these questions, but in the thesis itself, I really focused on just the nature of colonialism and its impact, and left the second question for later, which I picked up about 10-12 years ago, uh, doing the research and writing, and it culminated in this book. I like two
0: things that you said. One is the uh, introduction to the topic via Marx. I, I, this, mm-hmm. and this happened to me, too. Mm-hmm. Like I did. I did, I, had, I was going to be a doctor, and then I kind of read Marx, and I was like, you know, this is some really interesting questions this guy asks. <laughs> and, oh, it's, yeah, it's, yeah it's fascinating stuff. Yeah. the power of that man's mind. Yeah, no, incredible. He he asked all the right questions. Yeah, I don't know if his answers were right, but he asked all the right questions. And then, <laughs> and, and then you and then you mentioned David Landis. Uh, I used to actually teach with David Landis, and you, I think that uh, our uh, listeners would be interested to know that David Landis wrote perhaps the most famous of these books. That tries to describe why Europe and not other places. And I think it's called Prometheus Unbound, is that right? Is that right? Unbound Prometheus, that's what it's called.
1: Yeah, Unbound Prometheus. Is one of them. Is one of them. And then later he, he wrote a more popular book that explicitly addressed... Uh, glo- global Questions, uh, The Wealth and Poverty of Nations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was right. published in the
0: late 1990s. Yeah, so, so he, he really is the godfather of, of many of these books. And, and so it's interesting that you studied with him. Yes. And I can remember certain interactions with David Landis um, while I was teaching there uh, at Harvard, especially with the undergraduates who came there. Uh, you know, this was a long time ago, and they came there of a more or less socialist bent Mm-hmm. David Landis would not have any of it <laughs> he
1: was, he was, so was, did it you like,
0: teach was this in this historical study yeah that's right it was in social studies it was in social okay. studies yeah I taught with him there and uh, he would be brought in to give lectures about, yeah. you know because we would read Weber and Marx and these other things and he would come and give lectures about the history of capitalism and, mm-hmm. uh, his history of capitalism is very different than Marx's uh, and uh but that many of the, and we read Marx too, of course, uh, many of the students there, um, and I would say this is true of me as an early undergraduate, uh, were rather critical of capitalism as such and didn't really like what Landis had to say about it. And um, and so it was a very interesting experience for me. Uh, you know, I'm not taking sides here. I just remember Landis as being kind of a an oversized character.
1: You know, he's oh, a, yeah. He's a, he's a big personality. He's a big personality, and he he's a really major historian. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. Of uh, the... Um, in the post-war U.S. Yeah, absolutely. In so, the post-war U.S.
0: Yeah, so. So, so let, let me, I, you kind of asked the que- answered the question, but let me ask it in more detail. Uh, wh- wh- why did you write this book? I mean, this is a, um, this is the kind of book that one hesitates to write, particularly a young scholar. Uh, it's a big book. And, uh, sorry, I'm sort of interested in, in why you took up the,
1: the task. Well, as I said before, I, I think being a, uh, uh, being from India and spending a lot of time both in the U.S. and in India, it's the kind of question that looms large in one's thinking. But then um, also focusing in South Asian history, um, and since the late 70s, uh, there's been a growing body of research on 17th and 18th century South Asia that... That has been drawing parallels in the nature of political economic uh, development between different regions in South Asia and those that seem thought to be exceptional in europe mm-hmm. um So things like growing commercial activity, growing money use, um, the emergence of rationality that was associated with um, greater sophistication of, of commercial activity, Kind of state centralization, proto bureaucratization a number of things that were seen as uniquely European, while India was kind of caught in either kind of Oriental despotism or a kind of static situation or chaotic decline. Um, All of these these previous dichotomies of Europe and India um, really didn't hold any water, so if all of these ways in which Europe was thought to be different was no longer tenable, then how can we explain this divergence? Mm -hmm. Because these exceptional developments in Europe were thought to be the reason for, say, European industrialization and so on. So it really was a coming together of these two um, uh, points. Mm -hmm. And some of my work... On comparative these comparative questions actually began right after I finished my PhD, um, which I finished in nineteen ninety two, um, and I thought, let me see if I can get a, a, a quick publication from my research on weavers in South India, and um, so I I thought. Uh, South Asia in the seventeenth and eighteenth centuries was a huge exporting region, a exporter of, of, of manufactured goods, the most important being cotton textiles. So. Um, since the late seventeenth century the received wisdom on why these cotton textiles from India were so competitive in markets around the world, uh, its competitiveness was attributed to the the cheapness of Indian labor. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things that I found in my dissertation is that so if you look at weavers in South India in the eighteenth in the eighteenth century and they were in an incredibly strong bargaining position in and received very favorable contracts from merchants to whom they supplied cloth and so on. So this argument about the cheapness of Indian labor didn't hold any water, I thought. So I I did a a very rough comparison of um, of the weekly earnings of weavers, also spinners, and laborers in agriculture in in the mid-18th century, comparing South India with Britain in Britain at the time was considered to have the highest uh, wages in, in Europe. And what I found was that actually the, um, in, in, kind of very, in real terms, so converting these weekly money earnings into the quantity of grain that could be purchased, what I found was that uh, these real living standards, very roughly calculated, were comparable between Britain and South India, which really runs counter to a long standing received wisdom. So, this I published in 1998, and then this kind of sparked my
0: further research on these questions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I see. Well, one of the things I really like about the book, and I called it scientific, is that it's a good example of the way that science is supposed to work. Uh, we had a hypothesis about Europe and Asia. The part of it that uh, concerned Asia did not rest on firm, empirical foundations. Uh, Due to a lot of reasons, uh, American academia started to produce people that studied South Asia intensively and basically with Western methods. And what Mm -hmm. we discovered was what we knew about South Asia was wrong, so Mm -hmm. we had to go back to the hypothesis and change it. Yeah. I mean, that's just the way it's supposed to work, right? (laughs) Well <laughs>
1: in, in, in theory yeah. in, in the best of all worlds. Yeah. I mean right. it's it, yeah. it is I mean it, it, it a history is a kind of it's it's a kind of theoretical discipline that has is tempered by empirical material as well. Yeah, I suppose that's true, But evidence, evidence is often very hard to uh, interpret as well. Yeah, no,
0: that's absolutely true. That's true. Lots of
1: debates about how to interpret certain pieces of evidence. Right, but I think on on the whole, some of these um, previous assumptions about European difference just don't hold so much water anymore. Yeah,
0: yeah. I and I think that I've you know obviously it's interesting. I'd be interested to see how your book is received and other books like this that say something kind of similar. Uh, by the people that wrote these earlier books. I mean, uh, my impression is that they're sort of fair-minded people, and they'll say, well, we didn't know that, so I didn't mm-hmm. know that, so I was wrong, and he's right. And, you know, that that is, you know, and kudos to those people for saying that, because that yeah. exactly is the way it's supposed to work. Um, yeah. Yeah, so good. So let's actually talk about the... Uh, The thesis of the book, and let's set the stage a little bit. Uh, Europe in the 18th century and uh, India, which is your primary comparison in the 18th century. And you, I should say, focus on a couple of particular areas, if I recall correctly. One is Britain. And then in the Indian case, you focus on uh, Gujarat, which is in the west, and then Bengal, which is in the east. Is that right? I'm sorry. Again, I'm one of those people that doesn't know anything about India. So I'm I'm wrong about everything. (laughs) About
1: these are- <laughs> well, no. You've, I mean, you've been right so far about okay. all
0: things so, on r- India, right? So these, so are, these fo- are your comparisons, yeah.
1: I focus on a little bit on Gujarat. I mean, in in the 18th century, there were there were um, a half a dozen or so really highly commercialized, uh, big exporting regions in in. India. So Gujarat in the West was one of them, uh, but there's been less research done on Gujarat in the 17th and 18th century. Um, another one was in the East, Bengal, and there's been quite a lot done on Bengal. So I, I draw on a lot, quite a bit of evidence from Bengal in my book, and also my own area, which is South India, Southeastern India in the 18th century. So, it's, um, So I try to focus on Bengal and South India as much as possible, but for some pieces of evidence were not available for those two regions and so sometimes I go into northern India into, into Gujarat for some kinds of comparisons that I'm interested in making in
0: the book mm-hmm. and, the, and the industry that you focus on particularly is one that was very important in the 18th century we know that and that mm-hmm. is uh, the textile industry and particularly uh, cotton the making of cotton thread and then its production into, into cloth of various kinds right?
1: yeah textiles were the most important manufactured good um, in the world until sometime in the 19th century, maybe even the 20th century, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they're
0: a manufactured yeah. good. They're pretty easy to transport. They're universally necessary. Yeah, and cotton is so
1: much better than anything else. Yeah, available. and of those in, in global trade, <laughs> yeah, uh, cotton was the most important. And going back quite a long time. Yeah, so and until the until the nineteenth century, the main source of cotton textiles to this to the global economy was india uh-huh, that's right so so we're talking about a a situation before the nineteenth century in which um these cotton manufacturing regions in India were really major centers in this global economic order. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it really, one of the things the book tries to do is really shift our attention from thinking about a global economy in the 18th century or even in the 17th century as something that's really centered in Europe or Northwestern Europe mm-hmm. and argues, Um for the importance of, um, some of these Indian regions in world trade. Mm-hmm.
0: So let's come right to the thesis of the book, and as I say, it's it's very uh, it's very distinct. It's very telegraphic. Can you you state it? And it concerns this. Just to lead you a little bit, uh, it concerns the the problem that uh, British uh, tradesmen and I guess manufacturers in textiles faced mm-hmm. when they when they saw the import of Indian cotton. Yes. So, go ahead and talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, well, let me take a step back um, from from the British textile manufacturers to, uh, to thinking about how we even conceptualize the problem, because I think that's an important intervention that I make with the book, um, which is that... Um, Previous writings on on the problem of economic divergence have tried to identify something that may, some way in which Europe or Europeans were different from Chinese or Indians or um, West Asians, and then divergence is attributed to that difference. So Europeans. They, maybe they were more they had a kind of rationality that Europeans and Chinese did not have, or they had capitalism or they had a kind of scientific culture so these, this is how the problem has been um, or the answers to this question have been structured until now, and what I argue is that this is an anachronistic way to structure the problem because it it's, we can only structure the problem after the fact. Once we already know the outcome, but no one in the 17th and 18th centuries was operating or making choices with this outcome in mind. Mm-hmm. So I argue that to not be anachronistic, we need to so to, to really kind of situate ourselves in the 17th and 18th century world. Um, we need to first see that the. the, the the paths of economic change were plural or multiple, that there were many paths that could be taken. And I argue that we need to see these different paths that were taken across Europe and Asia as really responses to whatever social, political, economic pressures were being felt in those different regions. And if these pressures were systematically different, then it's not surprising that different paths of economic development emerged across this great area of Europe and Asia. Mm -hmm. Um, So what the book argues is that um, Europe was subject to two pressures that were not found in uh, any region of India in the 18th century. And the first of these was uh, pressure from global competitive pressures from Indian te- uh, textile manufacturers. As I said uh, a few minutes ago, these regions in India really dominated the, the global trade in cotton textiles, the most important manufactured good. Um, one sign of this of this dominance besides the fact that so many regions of the world from Japan, Southeast Asia, the Ottoman Empire, East Africa, West Africa, Europe, and the Americas, all of these regions, you now growing evidence is showing we're consuming larger and larger quantities of Indian cotton goods. or And if cotton Indian cotton goods were not available, locally made cotton goods. So cotton... Underwent a kind of consumption revolution in the in in the seventeenth and eighteenth centuries, um, and another sign of India's dominance in this world economy or importance in this world economy is that. Um, I estimate in, in the book that about a quarter of the silver that was being was, was infused into the global economy between 1600 and 1800. Much of this from the Americas, but also some from Japan. Uh, that about a quarter of the silver ended up in India, mm-hmm. which was, it then was coined and it fueled this great commercial revolution. Um, so, uh, European manufacturers, as well as manufacturers in some other places including Southeast Asia, the Ottoman Empire, they saw all of these Indian textiles being consumed both locally as well as in other markets around the world. And they started to uh, try to imitate these Indian cotton textiles. Um, And what what I argue in the book is that mechanization of spinning in the late 18th century, which is one of the key breakthroughs in textile manufacturing, um, and closely one of the central elements of the British Industrial Revolution really emerged out of an attempt to manufacture cotton cloth that could both meet kind of the specifications set by Indian textile manufacturers, the kind of quality cloth that they could manufacture um, and th- that could compete with Indian goods in markets around the world. Mm-hmm. So it was that pressure that w- led to this Western European response, I mean, it first really emerges in Britain, but you have textile manufacturers in other parts of Europe as well. And there's growing evidence for, for this from France, trying to figure out how they can out-compete Indian goods mm-hmm. and Indian textile workers. Um, so this is a pressure that was not felt in India, because they were dominant in this textile, global textile trade. Mm-hmm. So that was the first of these two pressures. Uh, that led to this uh, European response, that then put Europe on the on a path of greater and greater production using machinery. Um, the second pressure that the book takes up, I mean, cotton is extremely important in my mind, I mean, but the the sh- the mechanization of spinning and then some subsequent innovations in textile manufacturing, I I think in global terms, it's a very important part of this divergence between Europe and Asia because the center of the world's textile manufacturing from the late 18th century shifted out of South Asia or India into Western Europe. Mm So from the early 19th century, Britain really becomes the major supplier to the world of cotton textiles. Mm -hmm. So this is a dramatic transformation of global economic relations, a a different path of development. But that alone, um, I argue in the book, would have produced a rather... I mean, an important economic transformation in Europe, but cannot explain fully in some of the developments before the mid-19th century. The, and to understand some of these other developments that, have, that were centered around energy, the increasing use of coal, which um, then made possible once coal started to be put to work in smelting iron, and once... The steam engine started to be perfected um, a new kind of energy economy emerges, which I think is critical to understanding this the european path and that I argue using my framework of differential pressures um, what you have in in especially in Britain very early is tremendous shortages of wood which lead to experimentation with coal that lasts for several hundred years, culminating in the 18th century with important technological breakthroughs. But if you look at the advanced regions of India, Bengal or South India, or even the heartland of northern India, the heartland of the Mughal Empire in the 17th century, what you find is abundant forested areas. Mm -hmm. So there isn't the same kind of ecological pressure that in Britain gives rise to the search for new kinds of energy substitutes that produces this tremendous coal revolution. In India, you have abundant forested areas well into the 19th and even 20th century. Mm -hmm. So the context is really different. But in Britain, with this experimentation in coal, which begins... In the medieval period, uh, it slowly accelerates, um, and by the 18th century, it's the the increasing use of coal is closely linked to advances in the steam engine because of the poor efficiency of steam engines. The one place where they can be used very effectively is at mine heads where you have plentiful, and especially coal mines, where you have plentiful supplies of coal. And so the development of the steam engine is closely linked to, to coal, the exploitation of coal, and then coal is... Um, used for the smelting of iron, so iron prices suddenly plummet. So, by the early 19th century, so by the 1830s, 1840s, this new energy economy really starts to build up steam in Britain. But closely linked to a longstanding ecological um, crisis in Britain is the argument of the book that I had no counterpart in India. Mm-hmm. I see. So that's the larger. Kind of argument, and the third leg of this argument, which I think is really really important, um, and is the the centrality of state policy. And I think we need to see the British state in the seventeenth and eighteenth centuries as really a mercantilist state, um, which is you, uh, trying to build up the economy as a way to build up state power. So the state plays a very important role um, sometimes unintentionally uh, and other times quite deliberately in um, building up both capacity in both uh, textile manufacturing as well as in the exploitation of coal. So in the case of textile manufacturing, um, Indian cottons, um, Or the import of Indian cottons into Britain starts to be restricted from about 1700, um, and the kinds of restrictions um, that are placed on Indian cottons lead to new kinds of cotton textile activity in Britain. And so it's really interesting. You can see, you can track the development of the cotton industry in 18th century Britain very closely to uh, to state policies from 1700 on. Um, So British textile manufacturers have a a protected market in which they really experiment with cotton manufacturing and trying to supply this growing local demand for cotton goods. And it takes 70-odd years to really... Finally, be able to outcompete India. So, this is not, a, 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 this is not an immediate process. So, I an mean, economic change is often a very slow and long term process. And with coal, I argue in the book that the British state was extremely interested in, in uh, encouraging and protecting coal, um, which it, it did in a number of ways. Coal was really important for maintaining the peace of London. The the coal trade from Newcastle, so the British state played an important role in protecting and preserving that trade. The British state uh, helped... Or to encourage the replacement of charcoal with coal by placing really high tariffs on imports of iron in the 18th century, tariffs that grew steadily over the course of the 18th century. So we're really trying to encourage local iron manufacturing for military purposes um, and to reduce dependence on Swedish and Russian iron, for example. Mm-hmm. So I think economic history, for the most part, um, is Smithian in its focus, we could say, inspired by the work of Adam Smith and really wants to privilege the market. But I think this, the importance of the state needs to really be brought back in mm-hmm. to understand economic change. Mm-hmm. Certainly, certainly. So
0: this seems to be, and to put it kind of simply, this seems to be a case, a kind of classical case in the economic sense of market entry. That is, there were British entrepreneurs or textile manufacturers who saw an opportunity to outcompete uh, really people who were their brethren, because the British were importing these Indian textiles. And through innovations of various sorts, they found a way to provide the same good uh, at a Lower price, and as you say, with the help of the state and tariffs and things like this, is that a correct characterization, or is that, or is
1: that anachronistic? I think I, no. I, I think that is a correct characterization, and I, one of the things that the book argues is that the state is really important, but that doesn't mean that, uh, that entrepreneurial activity is not important. And if you look at in Britain in the 18th century, I mean, the ingenuity of entrepreneurs and, and manufacturers and coal miners is, is really extraordinary. Mm-hmm. So, but it, I think one needs to see this, the state as providing a very important context mm-hmm. for this entrepreneurial activity to
0: flourish. Certainly, certainly. So let, let's actually talk a little bit about the three legs of this argument. I'm going to talk about the first one uh, and, that, and that has to do with um, weaving technologies really. Um, uh, innovation is expensive. (laughs) It's really hard to buy. (laughs) I think there are a lot of people in Silicon Valley trying to buy it right now. It's not, I I don't think you can just buy it. Uh, so, so I see these, um, these British textile manufacturers and there they are confronted with these Indian textiles that are very high quality and people seem to love them. And they say, well, we have to do better than this. Why didn't they just do what the Indians did? I mean, how did the Indians produce it, and why didn't the British just say, well, you know, we have people over there, we have factors, and so we'll just kind of copy the way that they do it, and then we'll produce the same thing?
1: Well, they did do that um, for certain things. I mean, uh, they tried to get a lot of information about how Indians um, dyed cotton cloth, for example, and how they – a lot of this cotton cloth um, was either – printed with designs or painted. That was one of the things that made them so appealing. And uh, there were attempts to understand the processes by which Indians um, made these colors fast on the cloth. It's so so funny, I have to interrupt, because I was just
0: dropping my daughter off at her her school, and Uh they have a whole set of these sort of printed cotton cloths. They're just completely iconic, and everybody recognizes them as Indian, even today. I'm sure yeah. they're made in China, but but they everybody recognizes these things. Yeah, you know, and printed
1: cotton, I mean, which is so common today. When I'm sitting here wearing a printed cotton shirt. It's yeah, not Indian, but, yeah. but it's, it's, it has its origins in this Indian yeah. trade in the 17th century, very starting tra- in the 17th century. Very attractive centuries. stuff,
0: very attractive. So uh, so you said they, they, they did actually ape these techniques, but why not the whole production process, I guess is what I mean. I mean, why didn't they just say, you know, in the way that Ch- I guess Chinese manufacturers do, um, and I know Russian manufacturers, manufacturers did does this borrow the whole factory we'll bring it over here and we'll just produce it here
1: you know the main problem that they faced i mean they did at at certain points sort of bring indian weavers to britain there were experiments in france bringing over indian weavers and they didn't really go anywhere um the, the major problem in the 18th century that these European textile manufacturers face was really spinning yarn that was strong enough to be stretched on the loom as the warp. Hmm. So those were the... Mm-hmm. Um, and they they did try to figure out... They they made inquiries about how Indians spun the yarn and so on, but it it never really went anywhere. And I'm not... I can't answer this question mm-hmm. on you know, why it is that European spinners found it so difficult to to spin this cotton strong enough to be to be used in the loom,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, but there there were lots of inquiries. I mean, so studies and of what Indian, how Indians did it, but it it couldn't be it wasn't able to, to be translated into the European context. Mm-hmm. And this
0: isn't particularly unusual thing. I remember in the nineteen 19- does anybody remember the 1980s anymore when Japan was going to dominate the world? Do you remember? Yeah, yeah. yeah, remember that? <laughs> um, yeah, now it's China's going to dominate the world. I don't. We're very bad yeah, at picking yeah. the country of the future. are very
1: yeah. And yeah. I mean, I remember with the Japan stuff, there was all this talk about oh, just in time manufacturing. Yeah, right. And, we're going
0: to do it just like they do it.
1: <laughs> yeah. And it, I, I don't know. I mean, I think I don't think that it's. it's, it's you can't – it's not so easy just to kind of take something from one place and just pop it down somewhere no, else. No, I no, mean, it's quite difficult. Yeah, I think the whole
0: history of the Soviet Union demonstrates that. Uh, no. And I say that as a Russian historian. So, um, so anyway, they, couldn't, they could not uh, reproduce the way in which uh, these cotton textiles were produced in India. So then you say they sought alternatives. And when, mm-hmm. but, the, but the alternatives they sought are kind of unusual mechanical production of these things. Where did they get the idea to produce mechanical looms? Well,
1: it starts really with spinning. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it's, it was really the application of um, sort of roller processes. So if you have a roller turning that somehow if we can apply um, pressure, we can draw out a yarn. Yeah. So... Uh, and some of this this roller technology was was even applied to cloth printing in the eighteenth century and you can see also the application of techniques used in spinning wool yarn mm-hmm. into cotton in the in Britain in the eighteenth century, so things like the using uh Cards, so kind of rough brushes yeah. to um, put the fibers wool fibers parallel to prepare them for spinning starts to be applied to cotton spinning or to prepare cotton raw cotton for spinning, which is something that's not done in India at all mm-hmm. so it's a kind of use uses of different kinds of techniques that were in existence in Britain and applying them to the task
0: of cotton. Mm-hmm. So here we have kind of a, a, a classic example of uh, technology transfer and tinkering. Exactly. This, this, was, this sort of thing was in their environment. They knew about it in another context, and they thought it might be able to be adapted to the production of cotton thread. Exactly. Yeah, and it turned out that they could produce it actually uh, quite inexpensively compared to cotton thread imported from India. Exactly. Yeah, and then we come to the more complicated thing, which is actually the mechanical loom. Um, Yeah. And and these things are so complicated, I don't even understand them. They really are uh, pretty bizarrely complicated.
1: Yeah, well, it starts just with the fly shuttle. Yeah. So with something that instead of having to um, have – two people, especially in very broad cloth, that throw the shuttle back and forth to send warp yarns back and forth, being able to hit something on the side that can uh, send the shuttle back and forth. Mm -hmm. So that's really where it begins. And then it... um, then subsequently in the late 18th early 19th century that it that becomes mechanized. Yeah and then and then it becomes
0: mechanically powered and then we come yeah. to the story of of wood and coal. So originally I, I don't know what originally means in history but uh originally were these things mechanically powered by wood-fired steam engines or how were they powered were they powered by water?
1: Well a, a lot of the early power in in um say in, in Lancashire was water power. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. And even, say, in the U.S. as well, in textile manufacturing. And in, in the U.S., water power becomes really the staple source of power for and remains that for a long, longer time than in Britain.
0: Yeah, and I have uh, to, I'm sorry to interrupt, but you went to Williams. So, I mean, I'm in Northampton right now. And, mm-hmm. and this area of New England, uh, wh- wh- how, the, how this economy works now, I don't know. <laughs> I don't really understand what anybody does here, but um, there are mills everywhere. There are yeah. mills, water mills everywhere. So yeah. this was this was really how it, it it was done in
1: the 18th century was with water mills. Yeah, yeah, and even into the 19th century in New England. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, but in Britain you have some uh, use of steam power in the early 19th century, but it in in, in textile manufacturing in Lancashire, but it really takes off from the the 1840s for a variety of reasons. Um, some of it having to do with um, the, once the uh, the ten hour day is enacted, then mill owners they need to speed up their machines mm-hmm. and the way that they do can do that is with installing steam power mm-hmm. as opposed to uh, water power mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so it's it, One of the arguments of the book is that it's really, steam power becomes um, really central to cotton manufacturing um, quite late in the day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we can kind of distinguish between innovations in cotton and the energy revolution. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. So how does coal uh, begin to be used in this context? And why, again, you say that uh, England was deforested, Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can. The, people who've been to England will know that. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, and actually, it's interesting about this part of New England. Uh, most people don't. I don't know if most people don't realize this or not, but the area around Williams College, for example, and certainly Northampton, in the 18th century would have been completely barren because it mm-hmm. was all cropped. So this, there were no forests here. They cut them all down. Yeah, <laughs> and now so it's, you totally, have, it's all forest. <laughs> so you have a tremendous revival. Yeah, exactly. of forest yeah. in the 19th century. Right. Cut everything in New England. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, so England is deforested. They need to turn to another, uh, another uh, fuel source. How did they come upon coal?
1: Well, coal is 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 really abundant, found in lots of parts of of England and Wales, and even in Scotland. Um, it's um, in, it's in some places found pretty close to the surface. So when you find this stuff, I mean, I, at some quite early point, I don't know exactly when I mean, you have people in, in, in the British Isles kind of experimenting with yeah.
0: coal. I kind of, uh, I kind of my, my guess would be, you know, they burnt peat a lot. I know I lived in Ireland for a while. They still um, burn it. And uh, peat is uh, basically something that's about to become coal. At least
1: that's my my impression. So it is a fossil fuel, but it's not not reached that stage yet. So it contains less energy. Mm -hmm. Um, And... A lot of coal use even into the, into the 19th century was for, for domestic purposes, yeah. Yeah. so for domestic, uh, for heating homes and for cooking. Yeah. So that was really a, a very important, a big market, and this is where you could do a lot of innovation. right A lot, a lot of houses in New England have coal chutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there you go. And then, so gradually, coal starts to be experimented with for uh, manufacturing processes mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, of various kinds. So glass making and brewing beer, where you need to heat up water. So and it's just was a long process of kind of trial and error. Mm-hmm. And a lot of this knowledge was really um, held in the hands of hands and minds of the people who worked with the coal. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the interesting things in, in the, the, about 18th century Europe is that in Britain itself, which is where in Europe you had the most knowledge of coal, um, there were very few works written about coal. Whereas in Germany where there's much less knowledge about coal. You have many more publications about coal. So, And this is a sign that the Germans are trying to understand how to use this coal and trying to propagate this knowledge, whereas in Britain it's kind of developed organically through the coal workers themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then I th- the,
0: the, once these techniques spread in the textile industry and once coal fired steam engines in this case, or cold fired, uh, basically something like cold fired production, um, that, that would include things like, um, heating up water and things like this, uh, for the production Mm -hmm. of beer, let's say, um, once that is initiated, then other entrepreneurs in the English context begin to see that it it is a very economical way to do things. And they uh, basically adopt these technologies. Is that the argument?
1: Well, these these technologies do diffuse, mm-hmm. uh, and more people start experimenting with coal and different new kinds of processes, and come up with new innovations, and ultimately culminating really with the substitution of, of coal or coke for charcoal mm-hmm. in iron smelting, which mm-hmm. is a, a really major breakthrough. Right. Exactly. So let's um,
0: let's look at the other side of the equation. So the uh, the Indians I don't really like this phrase because I think one thing people don't understand is this when we talk about a place like Gujarat or a place like bengal th- these are enormous places mm-hmm. they're just enormous they're not and so it's it's uh it would be like talking about U- Europe and then one part of it England. India, yeah. one part of it Gujarat it's, it's really <laughs> a big place so uh, th- they were really the first to understand how to produce these textiles uh, efficiently enough to export them into the British market and the British sort of cooked their own goose in that way because they started this export industry um, again entrepreneurship uh, so d- did the Indian manufacturers of these things obviously they sensed that their um, their export industry was collapsing did they did they why didn't they attempt to borrow what the English had used in order to make their goods yet more inexpensive and then re-export them?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, they do start doing it from the 1850s and in Bombay, uh, which is one of the, the, the big centers of cotton manufacturing in the new mill framework. Bombay uh, begins in the 1850s. And um, but earlier than that, before that, um, I, it, it's a kind of, it's a, it's a slow process of change. I mean, it's not something that happens all of a sudden. And you have, I mean, you had multiple markets that were, uh, the Indian manufacturers and merchants were trading and sending goods. Um, so I think as, but sort of some of these markets in the Atlantic world started to evaporate. Then Indian manufacturers started sending to some other markets in, in East Africa or in the Middle East as Middle East markets begin to evaporate. And you still have the vast domestic market. And I think, so it, it wasn't a kind of a sudden, a sudden process of the elimination of these markets. And so it took place over several decades. Uh, I think the other important piece of it is that one of the things that the book argues is that one of the sources of of, um, important sources of dynamism in the 18th century uh, South Asian context is 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 really the state Mm -hmm. and. in 18th century South Asia, you have a lot of regional state building going on. So you have quite a bit of innovation in things like armaments, manufacturing, and metallurgy. And and states also beginning to realize that and they need to try to build up local manufacturing capacity in order to uh, expand their revenue base and be able to compete politically and militarily. And I think the, the elimination of the state or the Indian state system, we could say, um, and the establishment of British colonial rule. I mean, the British colonial state was not interested in Indians, kind of Indian manufacturers forging a response to this new global condition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I they were explicitly trying to like uh, expand markets for Indian, for British-made goods in India itself. Mm-hmm. So I think it's. It, it's, this, it's the gradualness of the shift combined with this uh, new political context. Mm-hmm. Because I think, I mean, the, you, to really respond to a lot of uh, seismic shifts in the global economy, I think you need to have, um, the, the state has to play an important role. And you see the state in places like France and Belgium really playing a very important role in trying to respond to this new kind of manufacturing um and industrial capacity that emerges in Britain. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Well, I mean, I, I, we've, we're running out of time, but there are a couple of questions I want to uh, I want to ask you, uh, and it's really about things that you haven't said mm-hmm. that are often said in this context, and you kind of touched on one of them, and that is there, there are some people that argue that imperialism had a lot to do with the fa- like failure. Is that the right word? I don't know. Uh, the failure of these other areas, non-European areas of the world, to respond industrially, to the European threat, but you, in your book, that doesn't really play a very great role.
1: Well, it it does. At the end, I think I think imperialism is a very important dimension, um, especially in, in the Indian case, um, where in the eighteenth century you have a, a, a really sophisticated. Um, economic order, and a sophisticated knowledge order, is what I argue in the book, Mm -hmm. Um, in terms of artisanal skill and knowledge and so on. And this really gets gets, uh, dismantled in the 19th century, Mm -hmm. as India opened up as a market for British exports. Um, There's... Less need for local armaments manufacturing because this new British Indian army is supplied from uh, with weapons from, manufactured in Britain. So metallurgical skills begin to decline and disappear. So there's a process of de skilling in 19th century India, which I think is intimately connected mm-hmm. to uh, its status as a colony. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, I certainly understand that. I'm I'm thinking of the parallel case being you mentioned that the British were promoting manufacturers in their colonies uh, in the 18th century. They certainly did that in the New World as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know that because I have just renovated an 18th century house, and I noticed that a lot of the finished goods were from England. And I I read about this, and that's because the English mandated that finished goods had to be – brought from England they couldn't be yeah. manufactured in the colonies well, no. no wonder they revolted um, You can't make a doorknob or a latch um, mm-hmm. right so, yeah so, so this so, is I mean this is yeah the, they, they the were, Birmingham toy trade yeah exactly they were very interested in this so uh, that, that's certainly correct and I certainly understand the de-skilling part of it as well um, but I guess what I was speaking to was the kind of uh, thesis that um, the imperial powers went into these areas in order to extract labor and unfinished uh, and unfinished goods and mm-hmm. and and, 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 that, and full stop. That's what they were about. Uh, that, that That's not really the story that you tell. No.
1: I mean, I think that, that dimension, I think becomes really much more important later in the 19th century yeah. in the Indian case. Yeah. I'm um, starting to say sort of where my were near the end of where my book leaves off in the say, 1830s, 1840s. Mm-hmm. Um, And you do have it, say, even in the late 18th century. I mean, these early muslin manufacturers in Britain in the late 1780s sit down to have meetings with the East India Company, which is still importing muslins from India. And they, in their conversations, the muslin manufacturers who still feel threatened by these Indian muslins and the competition of those muslins say to the East India Company, you know what you should do is import cotton from India (laughs) which we which we can use and then we can start export muslins from here to India and everybody will both we'll be better off and Indians will be better off from this. So you do have some of this thinking but I don't I think it's more in terms of particular commodities rather than a kind of big imperial vision of let's make this place an exporter of raw materials. I mean, that's that's the structure that emerges, but the process by which it emerges is more complicated, more uneven and slower.
0: Yeah, and I I don't want to say that imperialism doesn't play any role in your book. It absolutely does. It's just a more subtle view of it than the kind of uh, let's go in gunboats and rob them. Version. yeah yeah uh, yeah yeah so another thing that is not mentioned very much in the book is a uh, um and this you see a lot of this as well cultural differences hmm yeah you don't you're not really um excited about those as explanatory va- variables no I'm not and I'm
1: not saying that every place is the same but I sure some of these kind of key economic um, topics we can say I think mean, kind that of trade um accumulating capital, um, banking, you can certainly, the way Indians organize some of these things in in the 17th, 18th, 19th, and even 20th and today, centuries and today, are radically different from the way Europeans may have organized them. Um, drawing on relations of kinship and caste, and, mm-hmm. and, and even sometimes beyond that, and so on. But it's these, in terms of their effectiveness, um, I, they're comparable, I would say. Yeah. So there isn't I'm, I'm, there are cultural differences, but I'm not convinced that these cultural differences lead to radically different kinds of economic yeah. performance, we yeah. can
0: say. Yeah, I mean, I think that in many of these cases, the, um, the, the techniques which are necessary in order to create a market and then produce goods for that market and sell in that market can be very culturally variable. Um, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, when one place is producing uh, textiles for X and another place is producing textiles for X minus 6, the mm-hmm. People who are producing it for X have a real problem, mm-hmm. and and that's that's simply a universal, and they're going to have mm-hmm. to find a way to produce it for X minus six, yeah, or, or they're going to go out of business. Uh, yeah. in, in a free, yeah, and that this is sort of beyond culture. You really need to do this thing, and the, and the mechanisms which are available. I mean, one of the things you mentioned is ba- banking techniques, and they are very they're variable throughout the world. I mean, you think in the in the Islamic world, that it's done actually quite differently, but it has yeah. the same effect. Yeah, and capital goes where it's supposed to go.
1: Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think in terms of their kind of, we could say their allocative efficiency. Yeah, I'm not convinced that there are radical differences. Yeah,
0: yeah, and I find that I very really interesting because it, you know the, the, where the rubber meets the road in in, in, in competition in, in things like commodities is is how cheaply they are produced and distributed. Yeah. And that's really the end of the story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know what else there is to say. I mean, we can see that in the world economy today. I mean, the fact of the matter is, the Chinese are producing things a lot more cheaply than we can. So we buy everything from them. And our problem is we have to find out other things. We have to find things that they want or we have to find uh, how to produce things more cheaply than they do yeah that those are only two choices (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) you know they may like american idol or not i don't know but it doesn't matter
1: (laughs) yeah so this is a kind of constant economic issue we could say yeah
0: right in terms of competitive economies that's right yeah no it's a it's a fascinating book and i want to thank you very much for writing it it's very very interesting and well argued and it's as i say that the thesis is telegraphic and i think can be picked up by by anybody um and so I want to thanks for, thank you for writing it. Uh, we've taken up a lot of your time, but I want to take these last few minutes to ask you our traditional final question on new books in uh, history, and that is, uh, what are you working on now?
1: Well, as a consequence of of writing this book, I've become really interested in environmental history. Um, So my current project is in environmental history of 19th and possibly 20th century South India. So I'm really thinking broadly about the biosphere, um, water, forests, grasslands, and how and this biosphere has really radically changed in the last 150 200 years. So mm-hmm. uh, I think what has been the impact on human well-being of uh, this dramatic reshaping of our of, of the South Indian environment is what I'm working on now. Mm-hmm. And I'm about to I'll be going off to north to south India in about oh, a month
0: great well that's good congratulations on that and, and, and good luck with the work um, thank I, I w- you I, I want to thank everybody for listening in to this podcast we've been talking with uh, Prasan Parthasarathy about his book Why Europe Grew Rich and Asia Did Not a Global Economic Divergence 1600 to 1850 so thanks everybody for listening but I especially want to thank Prasan for talking with us today thank you for being with us oh thank you Marcel it's really been a pleasure okay bye bye